Hi, and welcome to WRBH's The Writers' Forum. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with Liz Williams, attorney, founder, and president of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum here in New Orleans, and author of this year's One Book, One New Orleans book selection, New Orleans, A Food Biography. How's it going today, Liz? Everything is going quite well. Thank you. Good. I'm so glad we can get you in here again. So am I. Well, to kind of start us off, One Book, One New Orleans, that's a big thing. It's a very big thing, and I'm very, very honored and excited. Well, good. And tell me tell me a little bit about how that happened, how you were notified, and, and what things have been done so far this year with the organization. Well, I got notified um, actually via uh, a message that I didn't receive because it got lost in the uh, in the internet world, you know, the nether space. Yes. And, um, and then I happened to call and speak to um, Megan, who's the president of, or the executive director, I think, of the organization, One Book, One New Orleans. And she thought I was calling because I'd gotten the message, but I was calling about something else. <laughs> and, um, and she kept waiting for that, you know, well, aren't you excited? And finally, she asked me, and that's when I realized that I had not received the message. Ah. And the next day, it showed up in my messages. So you know how that happens every once in a while. But it was really an exciting way to find out because of that. <laughs> no, I get that. And yeah. y'all done a few events so far already, right? We definitely have. I've gone to some of the One Book, One New Orleans meetings and things just to meet everybody who's involved. And then we had the kickoff um, about a week ago, um, and uh, that was at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, and that was really a lot of fun. Oh, fantastic. Well, that, that's great. Looking forward for more events coming up, I hope, very soon. We are planning them, yes. Well, good. Well, good. That will be happening throughout the year. I'm sure we'll hear more about them. Um, well, to kind of dive into your book here, New okay. Orleans, A Food Biography, mm-hmm. uh, when did this book come out? It was 2000... So the book came out in December of 2012. Okay. Um, and I think it may be actually dated 2013, you know how they do that. But um, it's been out for a little while, but um, it came out in paperback. And that, I think, is what made it eligible to be considered for One Book, One New Orleans, ah. because they require that the book be a paperback. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very excited that it's kind of getting a new... Um, reviews, so to speak, a new chance because it's now out in paperback. Yes, the lease on life. That's right. Yes. <laughs> well, great. And it's a super interesting look at kind of the food culture in New Orleans and the historical underpinnings of it. Um, how did you decide to write this book? Well, it started when we were putting together exhibits for the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. And one of the things that we wanted to figure out, this is a question that I kept asking, why is there a cuisine in New Orleans and really not necessarily uh, other cuisines in other cities or regions? And I kept looking for that article that would give me the answer to the question, and I couldn't find it. I found explanations in the introductions to cookbooks, and that would be all of these ethnic groups came together and abracadabra, <laughs> they turned into a cuisine. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that with any kind of rigor, um, you're going to say, well, they're ethnic groups, the same ethnic groups that came together in other cities and the abracadabra never happened. Yeah. You know, There are certainly dishes that have come out of other cities, but... I don't believe that you can find a cuisine that is 
as thoroughly a cuisine as ours is anyplace else yeah. in, the, in the country. Yeah, that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. And kind of like going into your findings, like you put it in that, that way that everybody else had these mixing things. Why was it New Orleans in particular that had this? Was there like certain, something particularly that you found that was the reason behind that? Well, when I was trying to figure out what the trigger was, you know, is there literally a trigger? I actually don't think that there is. I think that the biggest difference between New Orleans and its founding and the other parts of the South in particular, where the same ethnic groups came together, is that those places were primarily English Mm. and we were primarily French. Now, that doesn't mean that our food is French food. It is absolutely not. But the mindset of the people in France in the 18th century when the city was founded was very much um, the kind of place that led to the founding of the restaurant Mm. and also later the founding of the Grand Cuisine of France. And so you had people thinking in this way already and a, a willingness to taste and eat anything. So if you were if you if you can let me just ramble on oh, here I I'll, love that, I'll yes. definitely sort of tell this. So in England you have the age of enlightenment and we read a lot about the English enlightenment because it's in English. Mm-hmm. And um, so when we're reading the French Enlightenment, which also happened, that's mostly in translation. So we tend to know more about the English Enlightenment. So that was the age of reason, and it led to the application of reason to science. So you've got the development of evolution and uh, Darwin and all of that sort of thing. And also the the, um, application of reason to things like government, Mm -hmm. government. Um, So the English, when they colonized, there was England and there was the colonies. So when you came to the colony, you wanted to maintain your English identity. You wanted to eat like an Englishman. You wanted to dress like an English person. And so there were actually small colonies of settlements in early, early times that starved to death, not because there was no food in the New World, but because it wasn't English food, and people would rather die than eat like a savage. Oh, wow. Now, in if you apply the Age of Enlightenment to France, they decided that to, to um, apply reason to the arts. They were less interested in applying reason to government and and other in science. They were interested in the arts. And the culinary arts were equivalent to painting and music and all of the other kinds of arts. And so when they said that there's a reason applied to this, they said the person who appreciates the art is just as important as the person making the art. So everyone needs to be educated and apply reason to what they're looking at, what they're hearing, what Mm. they're tasting. And so you bring that mindset to the New World. But unlike England, France believed that everywhere that was part of France was French and was France. 
So just to give you an example, when we learn in school that Iberville and Bienville were French, Mm -hmm. we are not told that they never went to what we think of as France in their entire lives. Wow. We just know they're French because they were from New France, which was Canada. Uh-huh. And but they were just as French as the people in France. And so they came down here. They claimed Louisiana for France, and so this became part of France. So unlike the people in the English colonies, you were also in France when you were here. You weren't in a colony of France. You were in France. Interesting. And so if you had to eat an English, uh, an alligator because you were hungry and that was what was available, that was a French alligator. Interesting. So everything just becomes an extension of itself. Exactly. And, that, ah. and so you don't have to prove that you're French because you're... You're in France. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. And we still carry that mindset in the way we describe um, uh, Iberville and Bienville. We don't even teach that they were they were in Canada. We say they were French. Oh, that's fascinating. I actually never knew that. And and that that is the best way to illustrate how different the attitudes of the French were from the a- attitudes of the English. And so if you were here. You were exploring um, the the uh, the people from New France in, in Canada had the experience of being trappers. Mm-hmm. And so they lived um, a life that was very much in interaction with the Native Americans. And so when they came down here, they knew who would know what food was available. It would be the natives, the people who lived here. Yeah. And so... That was the first thing that they wanted to do was to interact with the native people so that they would learn where the food was, what you could eat, how you could trap it, all of that sort of thing. Yeah, and uh, you write in the book towards the beginning about the indigenous cultures here and their kind of cuisine and the, the basics of their dietary needs. And I was wondering what the original you know, settlers here took from that as far, as far as a base for the new cuisine in Louisiana and New Orleans in particular. Well, first of all, it meant that they could identify what you could eat. Yeah. So, um, like, there were oysters in in France, but then they discovered there are oysters here, and so that was something that was easy to adopt. Yeah. Because it was it was already known, and deer and and rabbits and things like that. Those were already known, and by the time of the 18th century, when New Orleans was founded. The pigs that had been brought here by the early conquistadores um, and had been brought alive on the vessels that brought people here and then let go in the New World had already begun to go feral. And so there were pigs everywhere and also chickens. And chickens were not something native to this part of the world. Our bird was the turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but you learned you can eat turkey. You can eat these duck. There were many, many things that were not strange. And then you learned about pecans and you learned about sassafras and you learned about corn mm. because there was no wheat in the New World. Um, that had to be brought by Europeans. And so our grain was corn. And of course, already previously, previous to um, people coming to Louisiana, there had been chocolate and all the peppers and all of those things that had been 
um, already explored and peanuts mm -hmm. and, and such, tomatoes. Interesting. And so coming and finding those things was not as extraordinary because they had already been introduced into Europe ah, after Columbus. Interesting. That's really interesting. Um, to kind of sidetrack and pivot a little bit, uh, you went to law school and you were a practicing attorney. Are you still one? I, I mean, I'm still licensed to practice. Yeah. I still pay my bar dues and okay. all that sort of thing. Um, but I really am not in practice. Okay. What took a practicing attorney and turned her in the direction of, of writing about food culture? Well... When I was in school, in college, there was no way to study food culture unless you wanted to be somebody who got a degree in home economics, mm. which is not what I wanted. Yeah. And so I became a lawyer because what else do you do when you don't know what to do, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I became a lawyer and I joined the military and was a JAG officer in the Army, but that allowed me to go live in Europe. Oh. And so I lived there for three years and was able to travel around and eat and all of that sort of thing. And what I was really, really interested in was why and how culture changed because of food. Mm. So if you think about the quest for peppercorns and other spices that drove people to explore the entire world. I mean, who would think today that something so seemingly insignificant and whatever mm -hmm. would be the thing that drove you across these, these oceans, you know, this total unknown place? I was really interested in that. I was interested in how coffee, as it spread across Europe, really changed the way people drank and what it meant. And then there was chocolate and what that did. And all of those things were just fascinating to me that as people have been introduced to different kinds of foods and as they became more and more um, homogeneous in some sense, um, that changed everyone's culture and it changed changed all kinds of things. Yeah. And I just, I find that fascinating. And then if you think about food, and this is just because this crazy thing, I mean, food is everywhere, of course, because everybody has to eat. But, um, you know, you can think about food in war and whether there are embargoes and whether you can starve people out as a kind of strategy of your war. You can follow trade routes by looking at food and how it's moved around. Um, you can follow different aspects of what people think of as healthy by seeing what people ate at different times. And then you can see how commercialism has changed things, how science has changed things. It's just everywhere. I mean, you can just study everything about people by looking at food. That's true. And it's interesting. And you have like these macro trends. And we, we've talked before about uh, one particular New Orleans one, or Louisiana one at large, you could say, is uh, the role of roux and gumbo right. and how that's changed in just the past 100 years and even 30, you could say, honestly. Yes. I mean, it really is amazing. You know, when people talk about gumbo um, and they talk about the three thickeners of gumbo representing different continents that have contributed to our food, Sometimes when you think about it today, it doesn't even make sense yeah. because we're thinking, well, nobody would do that with only filet mm -hmm. or 
only okra, but they would because they did. And it's today that where um, really flour is so cheap and ubiquitous that you can just use it over and over again. It's a totally 20th century idea that you should have so much flour and it should be such an easy fix that you can put it in everything and say, first you make a roux. I mean, that just didn't exist before. (laughs) Exactly. And it's so interesting how that got popularized and maybe a couple of generations removed from that now. That's the thing. I see people being outraged about anyone using anything else or like it changing, which is another thing I'm interested to talk to you about is you kind of lay out the entire succession of of culture in New Orleans food and that history right there. I'm interested what you think about the future of that that cuisine and where do you think it could go from here just based on what things have happened uh, while writing this book and since then? Well, I do think that one thing that's very important is that our food is not static. Yeah. We seem to be able to absorb and mold the uh, the food influences that come into us um, and incorporate them into what becomes our cuisine. So we have this constantly evolving cuisine. And because of that, because it's not static, it's alive. Yeah. And so I have no problems with what's going to happen in the future. I don't necessarily know what it's going to be, yeah. <laughs> but I just, I, I'm not worried uh, about it dying or anything because it seems to be um, something that is very, very, very much um, flexible and capable of absorbing whatever happens. Um, I think partly um, it's going to depend on whatever next group of people comes here. Um, I guess, you know, post-Katrina, we had a, a large influence from first Mexico and then from other parts of Central and South America, and that has made a big difference. I mean, people are eating oyster tacos and things like that, which um, are, are delicious, but are definitely an adaptation. Before yeah. that, perhaps the, the largest would be the Vietnamese. And, you know, we certainly have um, incorporated a lot of Vietnamese tendencies into our food. And so um, I I think we can't necessarily know what's going to happen, yeah. but I just think that it's it's kind of a wonderful to just kind of wait and see what it's going to be. Um, some of the things that have been trends that have hit other parts of the country, I don't think have hit us as hard. Things like farm to table and whatever, because we never stopped doing that. Yeah. And uh, and the same thing was true with, with the cocktail. We were drinking cocktails forever and we never stopped. And so when people started to drink wine in the 70s, and the 80s, and they drank wine instead of a cocktail or whatever, or, or a highball or whatever you wanted to call it in those days. Well, we were always drinking wine and cocktails, so it wasn't a big deal for us. And so those kinds of trends, which were very interesting national trends, we just kind of said, eh, you know, because we're already doing that. Yeah, that, that, that's kind of fascinating to think about. Everyone calls Louisiana in particular behind the curve, things did here 10 years later, but mostly we've been doing a lot of these things concerning uh, our cultural appetites, uh, but we just didn't have the branding for it. That's that's exactly true. I think that, that but that almost proves how ingrained it is that 
we didn't call it Creole food until somebody from the outside gave it a name. Yeah. To us, it was just food. Yeah. And so then once it has a name, then you can speak of it differently. You can be aware of it as opposed to other food or whatever. But as long as it's just food, yeah, it's just what you eat. You know? That's an interesting thing, talking about kind of outside perspectives and kind of the parameters that are set uh, from us and also the politics surrounding that because people, uh, a lot of identity is shaped by this food. And when you have those parameters uh, set, it, it bring makes people a little bit more bristly, a little bit more uh, edgy about defining our food, their food, all those types of things. Well, and people have a tendency, you know, everyone says that their mother's or their grandmother's gumbo is the quintessential gumbo yeah. and the one that you measure all gumbos against, <laughs> you know. And uh, and people, you know, they think that my gumbo is the best. And yet you still recognize other people's gumbo as gumbo, mm-hmm. even though you might not think it is as good as yours or whatever. <laughs> um, but what's interesting besides that, which I think is probably a ubiquitous kind of feeling, um, is that we also tend to think that whatever we know is the standard mm-hmm. and that what, you know, it, it was unchanging up until it, it got there. And so now we're seeing it threatened or whatever because it's changing. Well, it was been changing for 200, 300 years, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we're part of this continuum. We just don't think like that. Uh, it's hard right. to think like it, that. It really, really is, yeah. Um, tell me, in, in the writing of the book, how much eating was involved in the research component? Um, actually, I don't know that it was really too much eating. Yeah. It was really pretty intellectual um, because I was searching for things that really were not already said. So I was trying to synthesize a new theory out of all these theories that were just kind of out there. I read um, Guns, Germs, and Steel, Mm. and um, I thought that that approach, which was that Diamond wasn't a sociologist or whatever it took to write that book, he was just trying to answer a question And the question wasn't answered. And so he went about just looking all over the place to try to find the the answer. And I I took a lot of courage from that because I felt, okay, now I have license to do this. I'm not a food scholar. I'm not a historian. I'm not a chef. I'm not, I'm not any of these things. I'm not an anthropologist. But I don't care. I'm going to read all of the things that they've already written and just rethink about it. And synthesize, yeah. And synthesize it in a different way and perhaps take kind of disparate ideas that hadn't been linked before and put them together in this way. Yeah, and that's super encouraging to hear because, you know, a lot of people, I think, have projects they want to try and accomplish in a similar vein but feel like they they don't have that license to do it or they're not accredited enough to do it. But there are so many resources available now that you can really find out and do it well in a way that wasn't available before. Yes, I think you just have to be careful that you credit the people that you who have done the actual yes. research. <laughs> because really, I just feel that that's all I did was resynthesize material that was already out there. Yeah. And so I want to make sure that those people get credit for, you know, the laborious work of uncovering 35 
different letters and reading the, you know, the ancient work of so-and-so and, you know, all that kind of stuff and, and translating things from foreign languages and all the things that I didn't do. <laughs> yes, which is super useful to have, I think. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, great, Liz. Um, I, I'd love to hear about your time at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, uh, both, both founding it as well as anything that you've got coming up in this year. Well, of course, this is our 10th anniversary year. Which, congratulations. Thank you. And so that's very, very exciting. Um, and in this year, like very shortly, we are going to be opening the Pacific Food and Beverage Museum. And I'm very excited about that. That's happening in San Pedro in Los Angeles. And um, so as we are a regional museum here in New Orleans that represents the whole South, that's going to be a regional museum in Los Angeles that represents the food of the Pacific. So it's going to be Hawaii and um, Alaska and the whole Pacific edge of um, the country. Wow. And so it's it's really exciting. And we're actually um, talking to other people in other parts of the country. And I think soon you'll see that our parent organization, the National Food and Beverage Foundation, is going to be a network of sort of uh, closely uh, affiliated museums, um, some regional museums like SOFAB and PACFAB and some more, more general museums like the Museum of the American Cocktail and things like that. And, and so we're becoming this national institution. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. Ex- it that's is really exciting. exciting. Yeah. I, I'm glad for y'all. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit about your kind of daily work at the museum. What What do you get excited to do there? So I do lots of things. Yeah. I do everything from calling the in, the uh, the HVAC people because we have you know a Freon leak or whatever yes. to um, to you know wonderful talks with the press and. Um, Hello, working with everybody to put together new um, exhibits, and we have classes there. So twice a week, I'm involved in giving classes, okay. and then in the evening, sometimes we have different kinds of clubs, like we have a wine club and other things. Just there's always something going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. And for for listeners that aren't are familiar or need to check it out, uh, what's the website or where, where can they find out more information? So they can find out more information at southernfood.org. And that will give them all of our events, all kinds of things that are soon to happen. And um, also, it'll tell them about our other programs, like our library, our uh, National Culinary Heritage Register, and things like that. Cool, Liz. Well, to kind of wrap us up, I'll I'll ask you one question I tend to ask all of my my guests. Um, What are you reading right now, and uh, what's next for you as far as writing? So I'm reading Elizabeth Engelhardt's book about... Southern food and gender. Ah. And um, it's a very, very interesting uh, book. And, and she really concentrates on Appalachia. Okay. And um, so it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting to talk about women moonshiners and, you know, things like that. So I'm, I'm very much enjoying that. So that's the book I'm reading. Okay. And um, what was your other what was uh, your other question? Are you in the middle of writing anything? Oh right yes. Now? I'm working on two books right now. Oh wow. So one is about the Creole Italian experience. And that's the one I'm really putting my serious attention on. Uh, it's part memoir and it's part cookbook and it's part history. Okay. So and it really deals with the immigrant experience. Um how bec- how 
um, an immigrant family becomes American, and um, and not only in the way that the Sicilians in New Orleans came here, but also in the context of Italians in America, mm-hmm. and uh, and how the food changed. Okay, interesting. And what's the uh, the other project that you're working the on? The other project is a, a much more generic. Uh, 100 Places to Eat in New Orleans kind of book. <laughs> hey, that's still fun. We'll, we'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Liz, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That was Liz Williams, author of New Orleans, A Food Biography, which is this year's One Book, One New Orleans selection. You can find out more about the book and One Book, One New Orleans at www.onebookonenola.org. A special shout out to Megan, Ginny, and Elizabeth over that organization. Thank you for your constant support of WRBH and for putting on the great programming at the organization itself. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch us every week at 3 p.m. on Thursdays as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. All of our archived content can be found on WRBH's website, wrbh.org. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.